Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever, situa- in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word of the Lord. In verse uh, 11 and 12 of the passage from Philippians that Patrick just read for us, I'm going to reread that. Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is the focus of what we're looking at this morning. And it's an amazing thing that Paul, of all people, would say this. If you actually knew what his life was like, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, to be at peace, to be okay. And you have to think a little bit, if you don't know about it, about Paul's situation, the circumstances of his life. Much of his early life was filled with success, he was an early riser uh, in, the, in the realms of Judaism of his day. He was able to travel all over the world. He got educated by the best schools. He was connected. He was known. He was somewhat famous. And he had wealth from the perspective of that day and age. And then he became a follower of Jesus. And the rest of his life involved imprisonment multiple times, where you're in darkness, chained, dependent on people to bring you food or you would starve to death. He had been executed more than once. Think about that. The way they executed in the particular case that he dealt with was being stoned, which was not a good thing. That was the version where they take rocks the size of, um, you know, softballs and hurl them at you until they think you're dead. More than once that happened to him. He had been beaten like Jesus had been beaten with the lash, 39 times, four different times. His body was probably ripped to shreds, bones broken, not quite the way they should be. He had been shipwrecked. So any of you who have ever been in a plane crash and survived, that's what Paul had dealt with. He had spent a night and a day, a day and a night at sea, basically floating, I don't know, we don't know. Hypothermia, I'm gonna die. People hated him. 
And yet, I am content. There must be something in that phrase, right? The secret of being content. What, what is it, Paul? What is the secret? Whenever a phrase like that comes out, it, something jumps in our head. We think there's gotta be some trick, some secret, some life hack, right? What's the secret of being content? Is that secret kind of like those pop-up ads that come on my laptop? Like the secret of getting rid of belly fat. And I'm like, should I click on it? Because it's actually directed at me. It says, the secret of getting rid of belly fat for 43-year-old men. And I'm like, this is actually for me. They, this is a secret just for me. I've got to, there's, there's some secret for, how did they know I was 43? Maybe it's just accidental, right? Should click on it. Don't click on it. <laughs> we get excited about the secret of, the life hack for. What's the secret of contentment? Greek philosophers spent a lot of time thinking about contentment. The Stoics and then the Cynics carried on this idea of being content in all circumstances. But to them, contentment was something you worked at and achieved through self-mastery, self-control of your desires and appetites, and essentially detachment. Detachment before it was cool in, in Eastern mysticism circles. Detachment from physical creation, which was a bad thing. They thought the body and all physical needs and appetites were a bad thing. So you kind of remove yourself from that. You even, you even deal with uh, intentional um, suffering, kind of create suffering for yourself until you were mastering your desires and appetites, detached from need, and essentially could not be hurt by suffering or loss. That was the Greco-Roman ideal of a man, content, self-mastery, detached. We have a modern way of approaching contentment that does not usually involve a lot of self-discipline like that. One version of contentment is the American dream. I mean, quite frankly, that's what we pursue by nature if we're Americans. The American dream is built on ambition, achieving success, and wealth, and in the process, self-discovery. If you get what you're after, you will find yourself and you will be happy. Then you'll be content. And of course, the entire system economically is built on the idea that if you get something more, something better, whatever it is, the clothes, the vacation, the new iPod, I mean, iPod, wait, that was a long time ago, iPhone, the perfect house, if, if you have the right kitchen, if you've been to the right restaurants, you'll be happy. You just need to get the next thing. Get to the next place. Success, ambition, get, buy. But we all know, we all know that success and wealth and stuff does not bring happiness. There's not contentment found on the other side of the perfect career or more money, but we pursue it anyhow. There's been a counter movement over the past 10, 15, 20 years that instead of getting, it's organize. It's not buy more, but buy less. Reduce, reuse, recycle. It's saying no to materialism. Then you'll be happy. This is epitomized in the decluttering movement. Mary Kondo has her KonMari method, which is you go to each item in your house and you, you look at it and you say, does this timer spark joy? 
If so, you keep it. Yes, this timer sparks joy. It actually does for me. You, know, you look around, you're like, does, does this plant spark joy? No. You say, get rid of that. Okay. Just, that does not spark joy. Get rid of it. Keep what will spark joy. Get rid of what does not spark joy. That plant has been bothering me for a while. This method of seeking contentment, <laughs> this method of seeking contentment is a luxury of the wealthy. Think about it. Let me see of my stuff what sparks joy, what can I get rid of? You know, if you are a single mom in an inner city place, living from place to place, always getting evicted because you're behind on your rent. You know what happens with your stuff? You come home and your kids are with the neighbors and all your stuff is out on the street. It's just thrown out and you don't have anywhere to go and you can't take it with you because you ride the bus, you don't have a truck, you don't have the money to store it. So what do you do? Do you come up to that evicted mom, say, isn't it great? They decluttered for you. Don't you feel content now? The decluttering movement as a way of contentment is a luxury of the wealthy. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. We, we often need to do it. But it's not the solution to finding deep contentment. Another, which has been around since the 60s, is what we would now call unplugging. Mindfulness. Turning off all the distractions. Disassociating from all your problems going on a spiritual retreat, finding ways to get yourself centered each day. Spiritually, this is pulling from Eastern mysticism. And at its root, it's trying to get you to detach from desires, much like the Greek philosophers. But if you actually play out detachment from desires, if you play that out realistically, you can't really care about or love anything. You have to detach from really caring about your family, about trying at anything. And unplugging and mindfulness and being centered in detachment says nothing about who we actually are and why we are actually here. Except look inward, find yourself inside yourself. And often we're left spinning. We, we in the modern West, are the most healthy, most educated, most wealthy, most successful people in the history of humanity. We are dealing with unprecedented, unprecedented levels of peace and prosperity. And yet we are the least content people probably in the history of humanity. Instead, we are actually the most stressed out and anxious people ever. Alex Williams, a New York Times journalist, wrote an article two years ago called An Anxious Nation. At the beginning of the article, he cites Sarah Fader, a 37-year-old social media consultant who became semi-famous during a little window because she had texted a friend of hers about an upcoming visit to Oregon where her friend lived, and she didn't hear back from her friend for a day. Instantly, her mind raced. She then got on Twitter and posted something. She said, I didn't hear from my friend via text for one day, and I'm thinking inside my head, she doesn't want to be my friend. She doesn't want to be my friend. She doesn't like me. 
hashtag this is what anxiety feels like. That anxiety that if somebody doesn't respond in a few hours, they, they've rejected you. W.H. Auden wrote a famous poem that he began in 1939 in New York City, right a month after actually, or 1944, a month after uh, D-Day, and finished it a couple years after World War II, in which he kind of typifies the situation that we're in even now, which is that in an industrialized age where we're detached from one another, we are lost and unmoored from who we are and why we're here, and we're constantly anxiously trying to figure out what it's all about. And it's getting increasingly bad for anyone that is really younger and younger. The NIH a couple of years ago had a study that said 38%, 38% of teenage girls and 26% of teenage boys deal with constant anxiety. The solution from a couple of years ago was a fidget spinner. <laughs> Some horrible version of a three-leaf clover that you spin around in order to kind of take that nervous energy and put it somewhere. What is our anxiousness about? Anxiety is actually fear, right, at its root. Anxiety is fear of something, and it's actually essentially fear of the future. You think in your head, what if, and you plug in whatever the what if is, and it's usually whatever the worst case scenario is. It's not what if I make it into that college? It's what if I don't get into that college? We see this in hypochondria, right? Some of us make fun of people that are friends of ours that we, or family that we're like, oh yeah, she's a real hypochondriac. You know, it's everything is a tumor, right? It, because you know that it can be. But every cold, every bump, every bruise, it's probably, it's probably a tumor. Almost 20 years ago, we were living in Richmond, and uh, it w it, there was reports on the news and in the newspaper about West Nile virus. It was just starting to hit the U.S. through mosquitoes, and there were reports in central Virginia about West Nile virus. Well, I woke up one day and felt poor. I was not feeling great. I had a little bit of a kink in my neck, a little bit of aches and pains. I I, maybe, I, I started reading the symptoms, which is always a smart thing to do, right? Read the symptoms online. And of course, like, I had at least five of the hundreds of symptoms. And I knew, living in Richmond, and it was summertime, that I'd been out just like a, a week before at somebody's house, and there were mosquitoes, and I got bit a few times. So I called a friend of mine who was a nurse, and she said, you should probably go to the ER. So I went to the ER, and they did, ran all sorts of tests on me, and they said, you do not have West Nile virus, but here's your bill for several thousand dollars. We always think it's the worst-case scenario. And we can't control if it is. You know, even something as traumatic or challenging as PTSD, what is that? It's an anxiety about the future, repeating what you've already experienced in the past. It's the fear that it will happen again, and with good reason, if you've gone through something traumatic. We all have this underlying fear of rejection or failure or suffering and loss. 
We fear rejection. Social media, of course, plays that out even worse where you miss out and you know you're going to be missing out on the next thing or you've not been invited and you just have that deep fear inside of you. In that article in the New York Times, one guy said the challenge of being a young person in a place like New York City nowadays is that the dating world is based on Tinder, which is just an app to say, do I like, do I not like that person? based on looks and a couple of words. So rather than sitting down across from somebody or getting to know somebody in social circles like at work or at church, where, where maybe you decide, well, I like her but, or I like him, but we're just not, we don't connect. It's great. Like I can still be their friend. Instead, it's simply a you're liked, you're not liked. You're liked, you're not liked. And if nobody ever likes you, what does that say about you? You're ugly and undesirable. And you know it. It's right there. Empirical data. We fear rejection because we're desperate for love and we seek our worth in what others think of us. We have an anxiety because we fear failure. You're constantly getting the pressure for grades, measuring up, grades, measuring up, getting to the next thing. And then it continues. You get to your career and you're constantly measured. And you get to a certain age and you wonder if they'll keep you around. And if you put your hopes in something, it's the deathly fear that if you don't get it, if you don't make it there, then who am I? What is my life worth? And we fear suffering and loss. And that's behind our money fears, right? What will happen if I run out? Our health fears. I don't want to suffer. Fear for our loved ones, our kids, like, I don't want to lose them. I don't want them to suffer. I know not all of you in here have kids, and you might not ever, but to have children is to be anxious. You can't not have kids and not worry. And it starts from the beginning. Sarah and I were very young when we had our first child, and the biggest fear was that, they, that the hospital was going to let us go home. <laughs> like, we had spent a couple of years killing every houseplant we could possibly get our hands on. We even tried some of those ones that are supposedly indestructible, like, don't ever water it, doesn't need sunshine, it's dead within a month. We had never raised a dog or cat, and they entrusted us with the baby. I was scared to touch the child at first. A friend of mine came into the hospital and held my daughter before me because I'm like, I don't want to break it. We were far too young to have a baby. But here's the reality. You're always far too young to have a baby. (laughs) You're never going to be ready because every child is a constant worry. You have to keep this thing alive. It's dependent on you. And then it grows up and it's a little little more resilient, right? But then you worry about everything else. Will they make the team? Are they being rejected by their friends? Will they get into that college? What about their future? You know, especially as a parent, their struggles, their weaknesses, their challenges, and it can spin out a whole web of fears about their future failures and suffering and loss. Our minds jump to the worst. 
If my mind focuses on anything that I care about a lot, I will begin to worry. If it's my kids, it's, I, I can worry because I want to guard them from suffering and loss, right? It's a good thing. If I look back on my career trajectory, it took all sorts of convoluted turns. Jobs, not jobs, spending money for education, not sure where it was going to turn out, trying to get ordained, having denominational stuff blow up. All the timing of it was out of my hands. And there was a lot to worry about. If I think about this church, and I think, what if? What if the culture continues and I'm trying to hold on to, will we survive? Will I survive? Will I have a job? Will this thing exist? We spin out this whole set of worries and fears. Our anxiousness about anything reveals our deep desire for control to control outcomes, to control the future. And yet, we can't. And we know we can't, so we're anxious. So we try all sorts of things to control that anxiety, suppressing our fears. Like, I'll try to ignore that fearful side. Of course it can't be cancer. Of course this won't be the worst. Of course I won't fail. Or we try to do the positive thoughts thing, right? redirecting our mind, visualizing success. But look, if you're terrible at calculus, you can visualize all the success you want. And so many of us just escape. In fact, that's one of the most common things for people who are younger. I can't deal with the pressure, the stress, the anxiety, so you Netflix or pot. They're basically just forms of escape. One's a little more illegal than the other. But both of them are avoidance. Avoidance with things that cause stress. And the problem with any avoidance is it doesn't actually ease anxiety. It just delays it and usually increases it. As an aside, anxiety disorder is a real thing. And there is a good place for Christians to spend time with doctors and counselors and therapists and psychologists. There's a benefit to medicine to make some false kind of connection between faith and medicine for mental illness is a bad connection. It is a gift that modern medicine has developed some of the things that it has. That we are where we are with doctors, with counselors, with therapy. If you're in a place of deep anxiety, don't do that alone. Don't just do it with a Christian community, which you need to. Go see medical help. And if you need to be on medicine, get on that. These are good things. If my knee hurts, I'm going to go to a doctor and get the surgery. And I'll let them use painkiller when they cut open my knee. But on top of that, God offers us hope. We live in an age of anxiety. We have everything. I mean, literally, we have everything except peace and contentment. And so Paul points us in the right direction. In verses 6 and 7, when he says, 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's this great contrast that he lays out there. Be anxious about, don't, don't be anxious about anything, but everything bring to God. Anxious about nothing, everything bring to God. Share your hopes, lay down your fears, and trust your whole life, everything to God. And with thanksgiving, because what thanksgiving is, it's reflecting on the past, and in particular, God's faithfulness in the past, in order to minimize, well, maybe not in order, but the result is when you are thankful and you're constantly thankful to God for what he has done, it minimizes our our anxiety about the future because we realize we can trust God. He has been faithful. He will be faithful. And so Paul is calling us to pray as a way to turn everything to God. You know, when it comes to prayer, many people, if you just ask them on the street, why, do you, why might you pray? You pray to God or a God for protection or to get good things to happen. Sort of a karmic view of prayer. And the idea there is you've got to pray more and harder and more often, and then God will bring out the good stuff, right? If you're anxious about something, lay it before God, pray harder, and it will happen the way that you want it to happen. Skeptics, of course, laugh at this and just say, look, your prayers are just positive thoughts. That's why people say, I'm sending you pos- positive thoughts. Mindfulness, there is no God. It's all fake. Christianity says there is a God And we pray to him in order to have ourselves oriented and moved towards him and away from ourselves and focusing on our circumstances. Prayer fundamentally reorients us Godward. Prayer is reflecting on who God is and what he has done. And it also involves listening to him to understand who I am. What does God say about me? What is he calling me to? Can I trust him? Does he love me? And when I go to him in prayer, it's a constant yes. Yes, I love you. I'm with you. I care about you. And the more time I spend in prayer, the more it transforms me. Because it's really about relationship with God. It's about spending time with God, communing with God. That withness transforms us. The more time you spend seeking God in prayer, listening to God, the more you get to know him and his nature and his ways, and it reshapes the desires of your heart until your desires align with God's desires. And you can pray like Jesus did and like we do in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. And know that his will is good and then entrust everything to him. Paul was uniquely single-minded. His prayers had turned him into a single-minded person on Christ. Matt Hemsley preached on Philippians 3 last week, but let me read a couple of sections from it to hear Paul's description of himself I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
And verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his Christ's resurrection, and may share in his Christ's suffering, becoming like him, Christ, in his death. And so I press on, verse 14, toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's purpose and identity are unshakable because they are founded on and found in Christ and Christ alone. Paul is saying, all I have in life is Christ. All I need in life is Christ. What I want most in life is Christ. And Paul knows deep down in that he is Christ's. He belongs to Jesus Christ. And he cannot lose his in Christness no matter what happens in his life. So what matters most to him cannot be taken away. He is single-mindedly focused on Christ. It's much the same way that Jesus actually rebukes Martha in the great story of Martha and Mary. As Jesus goes to dinner with them and Martha is complaining, but apparently Martha was distracted with much serving. She goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, sitting at my feet, being with me, which will not be taken away from her. Martha is literally distracted by many things. She is focusing on all the wrong sorts of things, which is anything but Jesus. It's not that serving was a bad thing. It's that Christ was more important. That's why Jesus himself said, if you do not hate your mother and father, your wife, your children, your spouse, you cannot be my disciple. Now that was hyperbole saying in comparison to your single-minded focus on me. If your love and devotion for me do not make your love for your family look like hate, you don't love me and cannot be my disciple. But if you do, you'll love your family rightly. If you are here today and you're dealing with those burdens of worry, anxious about your future, worried about what's going to come next, worried about your kids, worried about loneliness and your future, you worry, you're anxious, remember that God loves you, that God is good, that what God has in store is better than anything you can imagine. You cannot protect your kids. You cannot guarantee success in life. You cannot guarantee that you will avoid suffering. But you can trust God. He does love you. You can find a peace in Christ that you cannot find anywhere else. And when you learn to live with that single-mindedness for Christ, it transforms everything. And that peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards your heart and mind. This doesn't mean it's an incomprehensible peace. It just means it's not natural to you or natural to whatever circumstances you're going through. Life is hard. You will fail. You will suffer. 
and you will lose people close to you. And if you don't know this, you will die. Every one of us will. So you can think about these things and get worried. What if? What if my kids struggle in life? What if Sarah, my wife, gets sick, really sick? What if this church ends? Do I want those things? No. Of course I'm going to pray for them. But God is Lord of all. God is good. And God loves me. And guess what? God wins. And I'm with him. That's why Paul can say in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The beauty of this verse is that it's about suffering. It would be better translated, I can endure anything, even great suffering and humiliation and loss. Because the focus of my life, the source of my hope, the joy of my life is Christ. And what I want most in life, I already have. I can endure all things. And that's why Paul says at the beginning of this section, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just rejoice in the Lord when your team wins the championship. You should, but not just then. Not just rejoice in the Lord when you get in, when there's success, although you should. Always rejoice because there is a joy and a peace that can be always and cannot be stolen or lost. And it's found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in a world that is fearful. Things that we cannot control internationally, in our own country, and certainly in our own lives. We cannot control our health, our future, our money the way we think we can. We certainly can't control those we love. But we can give them over to you and trust you. Lord, give us the faith to turn to Christ with all things and find the peace that only you can provide. In your name we pray, amen.